Our next guest is a former American football player who played for the University of Iowa, London Blitz Football and the Italian national team. Palma Foster, who is now the director for the UK and Ireland here at Data Talks, went from ensuring that his teams won on the field to becoming a sports business and technology expert with a Master of Science in Business Management from Durham University Business School. Today, we sit down with Palmer to discuss his journey in sports and the work he's doing to transform the UK and Irish sports industry's commercial performance. Palmer, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Lorraine. That was a, a very lovely and humbling introduction, um, but it's a pleasure to be on and I'm, I'm excited to, to dig into it. And you get the honor of being the first interview for 2024. So I'm super, super excited. But before we begin, we like to start off our sessions with an icebreaker. Are you ready for that? I guess so. <laughs> we'll find out, won't we? Uh, <laughs> what's your favorite quote, expression or motto? And why is it your favorite? Yeah, so actually... I think with New Year's resolutions, everyone kind of has these big ambitions. And uh, so you start planning out the year ahead and, and it can become overwhelming at times because you think of all these things you want to accomplish. And for whatever reason, the last kind of three weeks, um, I've found myself kind of giving advice to people. And it's always been you conquer a mountain step by step. It's easy to kind of take a step back and view this entire mountain that you've set for yourself to take on. But you take it down step by step. And if you focus on that step by step, before you know it, you're halfway up a mountain, you're three quarters way up the mountain, and then all of a sudden you're at the summit. So I'd say lately, that's kind of been ringing true. And it's, you know, we all have ambitions and goals, and we want to get to the top. But at the, at the end of the day, you, you take it day by day, step by step. Or as my former therapist used to say, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? But I do like the mountain analogy better because who eats an elephant? Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, and it's it's kind of like you know in sports, uh, I had plenty of coaches. You know, especially when you're the underdog team, it's like, well, how does the other team put on you know their game pants one foot at a time? You know, they don't jump into them two feet into both holes and magically pull them up. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody out there that's done that to prove it wrong, but. You know, it's it, they all have the same meaning. It's kind of just focus on the task at hand today, and and it slowly falls into place, and you, you paint the entire picture. So there's another analogy for the artist out there. Absolutely. And speaking of teams, you have played American football at the highest level in the U.S., Poland, the U.K., and Italy. Uh, did I miss any other countries? Uh, I mean, I guess we played a game in uh, in Austria, but you've never played. Yeah. Yes, I know. But but you've been played like you played at the highest level. How did your journey in sports start? Yeah, I mean that's kind of one that goes back to me not even being born yet. So my my dad has always been in sport. I mean, I guess his father he played football and in some other sports at the University of Iowa, where I was fortunate enough to play American football at. And my my dad ran track at the University of Iowa, so I was a third generation. But my dad actually was the national promotional director at the NFL in the 70s and 80s. And so he had a lot of great experiences leading up to that, even though he didn't play American football in university, which is, I find ironic. Um, but he was one of the first big people to bring professional American football to Europe. 
he got tapped by the NFL before he was there. He had built up kind of a semi-professional team in, in Iowa where he was working at the time for Maytag. And so he had the great experience of doing that. And that led to him getting an offer from the NFL. From there, he invented the Arena Football League. And for those listeners out there that aren't aware, it's indoor American football, but it's a slightly different uh, scale and gameplay. So the best analogy for our fellow Europeans would be rugby league to rugby union. So slight nuances, different kind of gameplay, um, although the field's smaller. And so he was able to do that. He he launched that league. It launched a bunch of copycat leagues. So basically that was in existence before I was even born. So I was kind of born into American football and it just was kind of a, a thing that just happened. It wasn't like, uh, I guess sport runs pretty strong in the family. Um, you know, I, I ran track to a high level, uh, was a six time national qualifier in that I wrestled, I played basketball. Um, so there's, yeah, there, there are a lot of different things that went on and it's just kind of, when I got to high school, the two sports that came very evident of, Hey, these are two things that I could take to the next level. It was American football and, and track and field. However, in track and field, I was a sprinter and hurdler. So carrying the muscle mass I had for American football didn't complement each other. So it kind of came to a breaking point after my freshman year of which sport am I going to kind of really pursue? And American football was the one I, I would say I, I wanted, I enjoyed more track and field. I was probably a bit better at honestly, but I just, I think running around a track consistently, you know, you're, I'd always see shirts for other teams. It's like our, our sport is your sports punishment. And it's like, well, if this is all we get to do is run, we don't even get a ball or, you know, a, a stick or something to play with. I was like, I think I'll play American football. So, um, yeah, I guess in a, a long-winded way, I was just kind of born into sport and more so American football. Yeah, gotcha. But you've, you've since made a transition from being on the field to uh, helping not just American football clubs, but actually just sports organizations um, sort of make an impact on their commercial performance. How has that transition been for you? Yeah, I mean... There's kind of two ways to look at it. There's the obvious route, which is, okay, I was a player, then I stopped, and now I, I'm working more on the professional side of things. Um, but at the same time, given you know my unique background and involvement with what my father's been able to do, I've always kind of been around the professional sports organization and in terms of the front office side of things, understanding how teams are run. I, I'm very fortunate that my father was – he owned and ran multiple teams. So I was able to see behind the scenes kind of the things that go on and, you know, a very unique perspective, especially for somebody at a very young age. And then, you know, getting to that age and realizing, hey, maybe I should pay attention to this because this is something I'm interested in after playing is done. Um, so to be able to kind of bring that back to now where I sit down with teams and, and help them understand, OK, what can we do? to sure up our, our revenue streams? How can we be more sustainable for our fan engagement and growing our, our brand presence? Or how do we attack grassroots? Because that's a that's a massive issue, especially if you look at the US with American football and concussions versus European football in the US right now, which is starting to grow. So it, it, all of these kind of issues that clubs and leagues and federations are facing are things that I've I've had a lot of actually experience with growing up and I've been seeing the transformations and how different clubs and leagues have been attacking that. 
<laughs> so and, and now here at Dance Talks, you're the director for the UK and Ireland. Uh, would you mind telling us a bit more about the work you do and what impact you are trying to make? Because you mentioned a few different areas, but which areas are you focusing on? Yeah, so I have the pleasure of working with teams, leagues and federations that are based out of the UK and Ireland. Um, we just brought on board the Football Association of Ireland and the League of Ireland at the end of last year, for example. And, you know, they're a great example because they hit every pretty much aspect here at Data Talks that we want to work with and that we help improve. And uh, so whether it's you want to sell more tickets, you want to grow your supporter fan base, you want to drive more merchandise, uh, you want to increase sponsorship values. And then another piece for them is grassroots. So obviously we know Ireland isn't, isn't the biggest country in the world. There's about just over 2 million, I believe, in the Republic right now, but there are probably far more Irish people or claim to be Irish people in the U.S. And so it's how do we capture that that entire audience? How do we engage with them? And once you've done that, it's, okay, how do we start to sell tickets to them or how do we sell them merchandise, but in a more meaningful way? So every fan out there is tired of getting a blanket email because it's, it's not personalized to them. It, it's not resonating. And so being able to help these clubs and leagues and federations understand who their supporters are and take all these different data points that they already have on them. It's not, hey, we're going to go out and harness, we're not going to squeeze their fans for more information necessarily. It's you have all this data at your fingertips, but it's in all these different systems. So we connect it together for them to say, oh, we now truly understand Lorraine. And now we want to send her a message that she's actually going to be excited about and she's going to want to engage with that she'll appreciate. And so because you can do all this, that leads to kind of the commercial ship, uh, the sponsorship piece where you understand who your supporters are. You can break them down to very granular levels. And then to your sponsors, you can say, hey, you're looking for people between the ages of 30 and 35 that are female audience that maybe don't have a family yet, but they have spending habits with you. They might have consumer habit interest in a particular beer because they're always buying it your matches. So you can pinpoint that exact demographic for your sponsor and say, hey, here's your audience. This is exactly who we have. How can we connect them? And then obviously the grassroots piece is, is always going to be fundamental for any sport. I mean, you need to continuously grow engagement and participation in the sport because that leads to the future supporters, whether they're playing, working for you, or just fans. Um, and then, you know, they might not always play, but for the, for the FAI, one of the things is, okay, well, once they stop playing, how do we get them into maybe coaching or becoming a referee and still supporting the sport and growing it? Absolutely. And you gave us a super concrete example when it comes to the Irish market uh, in the sense that those, there are a few people in the U.S. who, are, who claim to be American, uh, Irish or who are Irish um, and are interested in Irish sports that maybe local sports clubs in Ireland can tap into to sort of uh, boost their revenue or maybe their merchandise sales if people can't come to, to games or even just um, engagement with sponsorship packages. But if we're looking at the, the UK, what kind of challenges have you identified that you believe the industry there, whether it's a football club or rugby, whatever the case you, you pick, that they should be focusing on, on solving? Yeah, the, the UK is an interesting market. It's almost the haves and have nots. But most people, with all due respect, fall into the have nots. 
unless if you're you know the top six to ten teams in the the premiership of football here a lot of teams don't actually have a lot of disposable income to to spend on new investments because I think it's easy for people outside of sport to forget that most of the money generated through television goes right back onto the field, the performance side of, of things. So when you think about front office, when you think about technologies to help drive, you know, more revenue or marketing or any activity like that or facility upgrades, um, anything that's not happening on the field, that's very tough for clubs to actually put money into because they're putting everything into that on-field performance. And when you're not in the top, eight clubs it will we'll stick with football for this we have the pyramid system there's the premier there's the championship league one league two national league national league north and south and then you get into even the more regionalized and everyone's trying to move up because there's a bigger chunk of money at stake but they're always fixating on that bigger chunk and they're spending money on on-field performance that's not very sustainable um, i was just having a conversation with actually a, a london club the other day about this um and we were talking about, you know, there you've got four areas. You've got your on-field performance, which is the most obvious one for fans to see. But then you have business development. You have uh, supporter growth. And then you have facilities. And those other areas, if you can take care of those, that's going to enable you to be a, a more solid foundation to then build your on-field performance. A great example of this is Brentford. Look at what they've done. They're now mainstay in the Premier League, you know, a handful of years ago, they weren't in that position, but they they built their new stadium. They're really growing their supporter base. They're doing a lot of great business ideas and executing on them. And as a result, the on-field performance has followed suit. Now, when they went up to the Premier, obviously they got a bigger chunk of money, but they're putting that into their players. But everything else was already ahead of where it needed to be. You know, an interesting one is like Newton Town where they've climbed the ranks of the football pyramid sustainably because they haven't overspent, but at the same time, they're now in a position where they're competing with clubs that have a stadium at least four times the size of theirs. So that gate revenue from ticket is so much larger, it's hard for them to compete. So now it's, okay, how do you upgrade facilities on all these other pieces? Or are they just content with one season in the Premier, they get a parachute payout when they go back down? If you look at rugby, it's a completely different state because unfortunately a lot of the clubs have overspent. I mean, you saw what happened to Sarsen a few years ago where they got financial penalties. I mean, obviously Walsh were no more, and now they're looking to try and come back. The London Irish don't exist anymore, which is a, an absolute tragedy. So it's, I think every club is concerned about where they can find more revenue. And that's, you know, that's first and foremost, what we here at data talks will help clubs do, but we, we don't find it through television. We find it through other revenue streams that they might not be capitalizing on most or maximizing, and then we make it more sustainable. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned, uh, I like that phrase, the, the haves and the have-nots, because even in the Premier League, if you look at the statistics, actually, I was reading somewhere that the lowest-ranked NFL team makes more profit than the highest-ranked Premier League uh, team and also that now the um, Indian Premier League which is cricket has overtaken the English Premier League in terms of uh, sort of broadcast and just general value of how much money got injected in into into the league so is it like 
is this a thing that should be concerning the the Premier League? Maybe the the and you mentioned a few things like the unsustainability of everything that people are overspending, and maybe there's an overemphasis on broadcast rights, even though that then goes to the performance side and doesn't really go to the to the supporter engagement. How do how can clubs even at the highest rank that um, on paper have a lot but when you really peel the layers have very little how can they find that balance of okay we're focusing on the on-field performance and making sure that the money uh, to support that is coming in from broadcast and also we shouldn't forget the the fans you know because when you look at Manchester United for example they have been getting really bad publicity in terms of just people maybe feeling that the club is not run properly and that maybe it's focusing more on the capitalism. And of course, they're trying to balance that when uh, with the new acquisition by Sir uh, Jim Ratcliffe. You know, he's acquired like 25% stake in Manchester United now. So how do you balance all of this? Because it does seem like a lot is going on and there's a lot to be fixed. Yeah, there, there's definitely a lot to unpack there. I mean, one of the things with the NFL and more so U.S. leagues, one of the brilliant things they did was file for nonprofit status. So they're actually not generating profits. Um, they're continuously reinvesting. And obviously that helps them with tax breaks, things like that. It, it's a pretty clever scheme. Whereas I know some women's clubs in the U.K. have tried to operate under a nonprofit and HMRC said, no, no, you can't do that. Uh, your for-profit business. So that kind of makes it a bit more difficult. When you start to look at the growth of the IPL, I mean, India is a is a hungry country at this point for content. And they're, you know, do they have multiple sports that are competing for that limelight right now? I, I don't know enough about the Indian market to say a definitive yes or no. But what I would say is, you know, the IPL has caught their attention. Uh, India is always had a great relationship with cricket they performed very well obviously anyone that knows cricket knows that um but you know if you look at the uk we have rugby league rugby union we have the premier we have the championship we have league one league two we have all kinds of other sports that are fighting for that that kind of public eye whereas in india it's the ipl at the moment i'm sure they have other leagues that are performing well but the ipl is dominant so in obviously the population base of India alone is a massive scale compared to the UK. So it's kind of hard to compare the two of them. If we look at premier broadcast rights and what's going on on the continent in Europe, we are starting to see that the, the revenue figures, they're not faltering, but it, it's, we're starting to question, okay, how sustainable is this? Is this realistic? I mean, the, the premier broadcast rights are still growing. Everyone views it as the beacon of football. Everyone wants to play here. Everyone wants to consume the content. But at the same time, the the FA needs to, to look at things. The premier needs to look at things and say, how sustainable is this? We need to put in financial, um, you know, metrics to, to really hold everyone accountable and ensure that clubs aren't burning out. Because what we're starting to see is there are a lot of clubs in the lower levels that are starting to falter and, and becoming they're having financial issues. Um, you know, there's one that I can think of particular here in London that's in the championship and they're having severe issues because they've overspent. They can't, I mean, they have deep backing and deep funding, but at the end of the day, is that sustainable? You're just burning 
money through a hole. Um, I know there's another club just north of London, same kind of situation where the men were hoping to get back up to the premier. They failed to do that. And so now they're in a precarious situation. And then that puts pressure on the rest of the operations because it's not just the men's team. You have youth academies, you have women's teams. And so we really need to sit down and look at, okay, what is actually sustainable? How realistic is it to expect X amount of money from broadcast revenue? Where else can we shore that up? If we look at rugby league, for example, the Betfred Super League, they unfortunately took a financial haircut with their new uh, broadcast deal with Sky Sports. So the clubs that have been in the league are now taking a financial cut from that. Clubs coming up that have won promotion, obviously it's an improvement for them, but they don't know any different. So in that kind of situation, you would kind of think it's a bit advantageous, but at the same time, there's all kinds of challenges. So realistically, I think clubs in the UK especially need to start to understand, okay, what is realistic? We need to have kind of a plan B for when maybe broadcast revenue isn't at what it was because there's more content out there than ever. And everyone's competing for the same dollar, whether you're in sport, you're in the film industry, the music industry, it's all entertainment. We all compete for the same the same dollar, the same pound, the same euro. And that's what a lot of people need to realize. And there are a lot of great, brilliant people out there that do understand this in the sport industry, but there are also probably more that don't understand that. And um, I'm going to throw a little curveball here because I, I, um, I was reading somewhere, uh, don't quote me on the exact amount, but I think it is around like, 119 US dollars that's how much uh people are willing to to invest in sort of the event market on average when I say event market is music cinema and sports it's just because you mentioned it now and I think of uh sort of the women's teams how they're charging about like five pounds for a game and these are the Chelsea's of the world you know and the the Arsenal um in the WSL do you think it's probably not because sometimes things sound simpler in 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 theory, right? Because it's like, well, if the number is 119 that people on average are willing to spend, why would a uh, sort of um, women's season ticket cost about like, I don't know, like 200 pounds? I don't know how much it costs actually um, compared to I think Fulham last year had the most expensive season ticket around 3000 pounds. And so then I guess my question to you is the the pricing and as well, when we're looking at the lower sort of non-Premier League clubs in the lower in the lower pyramids, when it comes to the pricing, when it comes to the to the ticketing and just that commercial side of things and trying to engage fans, could the WSL be doing more? Could the the sort of champion championship and the League One, League Twos of the world? what could they be doing more to sort of really tap into the the fact that fans and just general fans like fans of music fans of cinema fans of sports are willing to spend money on 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 sports on music on cinema so how can um sort of the wsl lower leagues really tap into that and tap into it with confidence without fearing so much that they would sort of um make things inaccessible if you get my question yeah, the WSL and women's sport in general needs to understand they can't devalue their product. So giving away free tickets on, you know, appearance-wise sounds amazing because, yeah, you might get 200 people to the game 
versus if you're charging five pounds a head, you might only get 50. But as soon as you start giving away tickets, people take it for granted. They assume it's always there. Uh, they're, they're not going to treat it as a perishable item. And that's the worst thing you can do in sport because every match that you have is perishable. You don't get it back. So you need to create value and perceived value of that ticket. Um, so when, you know, both you and I have done a lot of work with women's sports teams and leagues and federations here in the UK and Ireland. And that's always a, an interesting conversation that we have and it's okay. Well, do you want to move towards, okay, we'll charge 50 people, five pounds. Well, at least that's money coming in. And then when you start to grow it, people are aware you've always been charging. It hasn't been free because otherwise people will come back and say, well, I used to get free tickets for this. Why don't I have a free ticket still? And, and people won't let go of that for a while. You need to create value from the get-go. And a hypothesis that I might have, and whether or not it actually becomes true, I would say it probably won't, is with this, whether it's sustainable or unsustainable growth of the men's side, you know, tickets for the premier just can become more and more expensive. They're going to squeeze more and more money because they understand they're, the, they're a top product. Well, do you start to see fans shift away from that into the women, the women's WSL? Because that's the premier. And as we saw, especially at the, the last World Cup, women's football is equal to men's, at least in my opinion, it is. And there's no better truth to that than the women's French national advert that they put out, where it showed men playing was actually women. They just put digital men over it, and it was actually women doing all of that. I think that shows the power and the equality of, of the level of play that they have. And so whether or not we'll see fans transition from the men's side to the women's side because it's a much more affordable product and then you see demand drive up the pricing of that, I don't think that will happen, unfortunately. I think we'll see the value of the women's side go up, but it's not going to go at a, an alarming rate like you would see if we had that mass migration. But the women's side absolutely needs to charge for their product because they have a great product. They need to understand that and they need a whole firm. It's going to take a while but they need to be committed to that. For the men's side, you know, the, the championship clubs, the League One, League Two, it, it's always an interesting conversation because it's like, well, these clubs have all existed for a long time. It's brained into the fabric society. You, you always have your local club, but then you have a, a bigger club. Up in Scotland, I've done work with clubs, and one of them said, oh, well, we'll be the second club for somebody. They might be a fan of Rangers. They might be a fan of Celtic. They might be a fan of Hibs or Hearts. And then we'll be your second club when they're not playing. That's business new side. You, you need to understand your value and your offering to your fan. Because you know what? If you're going to be a second club for somebody, you were never their first club. That's not your target audience. You need to understand who your market is. You need to understand where you're marketing to. And you need to understand who your fans are. I mean, that... I was very fortunate enough to actually take a class taught by my father. And that was one of the things. You, you need to know your market. And that's what a lot of these clubs need to really reassess at this point because they've been around for most of them are coming up, if not already beyond 100 years. But when's the last time they kind of reassess their market? Where do they actually fit? Because if we look at London alone, there are, I think, at least six premier clubs. There's probably at least two more championships, probably two more League One and two more League Two. And that's conservative, just rallying off the top of my head. I'm sure there's people listed out there going, that isn't always talking about because they're clearly more. But the reality is there's quite a few top flight football clubs in London. 
How do you compete in that market space? Yes, London's a massive city, but at the same time, you're competing against film, you're competing against cinema, you're competing against music, you're competing against London itself. Let's not forget the city itself is a tourism attraction, and that's that's entertainment value and that's entertainment spend. So clubs really need to understand their market and how to best approach it. And I guess this comes back to the work that you do, because when you said, when was the last time clubs that are nearing like 100 years old actually did a market analysis? Um, you find that, I guess what I'm hearing you say is that instead of just being like, okay, we're just going to try to get as many people to buy tickets as possible, what you're trying to do is really assess all your data points and be like, who are the people that have been buying our tickets who have been coming what do we know about them so how can we tap more into them so that they're actually not uh we're not a number two club anymore for them but we're a number one club as and as well as sort of finding other people that sort of fit that criteria that you can then pull into into the club so that they can actually sort of be more active fans and think of you top of mind versus thinking of another club first or maybe a film or maybe like doing another activity is that what you're saying like is that the significance of the work that you do here Dasha Talks? yeah so it, it's easy for a club to get into the state of mind that hey we're we're the show we open our gates and people come and again if you're in the premiere and you're a top flight club yeah that will work you, you have global brand recognition. You can churn through supporters. You might not ever see the same person again, but the reality is they have people that keep coming back. They don't have to do a lot. Everyone else has to be creative and they need to understand who they, again, know your market. They need to understand who they're engaging with to your point, understand your data points. How can we create more perceived value for them? How can we message them with resonating things that they're going to appreciate? And so, a great example of this is I implore everyone to go look at minor league baseball in the U.S. because that is a very difficult sport. I worked in it professionally. And the amount of games that they have at home, they don't control their on-field performance because they have a farm league system. So kind of like academies here for football. However, they have triple-A baseball, double-A baseball, high-A, low-A, short season so the Houston Astros will have a club for each level of this. The Houston Astros tell each club at that level, here's your team. So the front office side has no control over that. So what do they have to do? They have to create more value because they might have a terrible team that year and they can't do anything about it. They're at the mercy of the, the Houston Astros. And so what they have to do is create this value. They have to understand their market. They have to uh, find ways to get people to the stadium and deliver value, even though the product on the field isn't good. And that's something that I would, with all due respect to the clubs here in the UK, need to be better at. You know, you go to a football match here, it's, you can get a couple of different kinds of beer, which you can have before the match starts at halftime and then after. You might get a meat pie and maybe a hot dog. Again, there'll be the have not. There's so much there that I, I could sort of ask you questions around such as things like legacy, right? Because some clubs are at the mercy of their own legacy. Like this is how we always done it. We always had like meat pies at the stadium. That's what we'll have, even though maybe the Gen Z is not interested in meat pies, et cetera, et cetera. But let's not go too much into detail with that and uh, talk about something that you mentioned before, which is uh, 
our involvement with uh, women's sports. Um, we have an initiative called Women in Sports Beyond the Hashtag here at Data Talks, where we aim to create tangible value for women's sports at both the individual level and the organizational level. Can you tell us some more about some of the work that you have done or that we've done together um, when it comes to like women's sports um, and what you're hoping to maybe do a bit more of this year? Yeah, I, I mean, a great example for us is Lewis FC, obviously in the women's championship, doing great things and uh, a client of Data Talks and wanting to replicate that for pretty much every women's club and league and federation. And so we get the pleasure of sitting out with these, again, clubs, leagues, federations, and, and understanding kind of where they're at. What kind of support do they have? What kind of resources do they have access to? And more often than not, they're all in the same boat. They don't really have access to any kind of resource. They don't really have a lot of support, even though the, you know, the men's side is saying, hey, go do this. Good job. And, you know, we've got your back. But then when it comes time for resources where they actually really need to put their mouth where the money is, it's not there, unfortunately. And so it's, I really enjoy working at the women's side because they have a clean slate. You mentioned legacy. They don't have these institutionalized practices. They, they can approach it from a different mindset. However, what is frustrating is they, they don't get the resources necessarily. And that's what they do need. And it's not millions and millions of pounds of resources. It's, hey, you know, give a bit of money and let's see how far we can take this just on kind of a bootstrap approach. And most of them are already on that. It's like, okay, well, you're already starting to see a, a few good things. Maybe put a bit more in, but it comes back to the more entangled problem, which is men's side overspending and not getting promotion. And then you're in, you have financial repercussions, which affects not just the men's side, but everyone. So it puts a lot of stress across every operational functionality of the club. So it's usually a, a bit of a minefield when we work with women's clubs because it's understanding, okay, what's a realistic next step? What are ideas that you can actually start doing? How can you start to kind of grow your engagement? And how do you start to pull in new supporters and fans? Because unfortunately, a lot of women's clubs that we tend to meet with are hesitant to charge for their product. And, you know, for you and me, it's... It, it's an easy thing for us to see where you absolutely need to, but at the same time, they need to have people at their matches. They need to be seen as growing the, the engagement and the support and you know, butts and seats is the easiest way to do that. So I completely appreciate the, the predicament that they're in. It's just an unfortunate one because, you know, we know, they know that charging per person is a much better and sustainable approach because then when, you start to grow it, everyone's, it comes back to everyone's used to paying for it. They're not going to sit there complaining, hey, I used to get free tickets for this. Why am I having to pay? Well, I'm not going to go to that. Why would I pay for this when I used to get free tickets? And unfortunately, that, that's an attitude that's very easy to instill, and you want to avoid that. And uh, just before we sort of start closing, like I could talk to you forever, Palma. You have so much knowledge about all the different uh like you, because you've worked in different uh, countries and different areas, so you can do these sort of cross analysis and sort of compare and contrast it, uh, so to speak. And I'd love us to do like a cross analysis of like rugby, cricket, football, maybe in Ireland, thinking about Gaelic football, thinking about um, Kamogi, thinking about um, hurling, et cetera, et cetera. But just looking at the different sports in the UK and Ireland market, what do you think, like, 
the sports can learn from each other because there's certain things that football, for example, on the women's side, football in the UK, like many other sort of sports can look at women's football for inspiration on how to be a bit more like do a rebrand, right? Because once they did that rebranding in 2018, things just went flying for them. Um, so if we were to look at the different sports, what do you think each sport could learn from the other? You can always learn from somebody else. That That's rule number one. Um, the Premier could learn a lot from other leagues and obviously lots can learn from the Premier. So one of the ones that's always interesting to me is rugby league. And for those out there that don't know rugby league, it's slightly different from union. It's more of a Northern England sport. And they had a break over a hundred years ago, basically, you know, the, the North was a bit more of a poor area in the UK. So they want to be professional sooner. So league became the professional side. And then obviously now union is professional, but so league is, has a very interesting opportunity because they have teams across multiple countries. And I think that's very fascinating. And they now have a team in London that's in the Super League. And so they have an opportunity to grab kind of the eye of London. So it'll be interesting to see what they do from that. However, you know, they need to be aware of kind of what's gone on from Union and, okay, financial distress that's going on. So, you know, you expand, you need to be sustainable, you need to have careful footing. You look at Ireland and kind of how it's broken into the four counties for most sport. I think that's very fascinating it's you know again ireland's limited by its population size but boy they are fierce in supporting what they what they follow so i mean whether it's gaelic whether it's hurling whether it's rugby even football i mean cricket even it's it's very interesting to kind of see the difference between the republic and well i guess the whole of ireland versus great britain how they kind of handle sport because great britain's more of a kind of like a u.s model where you have all these different clubs competing versus Ireland. You've got kind of the county sports going for it at, outside of like the League of Ireland. So there's there's plenty they can learn from each other just because, you know, it's okay, you have more of the county base. So then everyone's kind of got their team they're always going to support versus in London, it would be very easy to go from, well, you might get in trouble for supporting Chelsea and then switching to Tottenham because obviously no one's going to do that. But just kind of understanding how, I guess your region really dictates who you support. Um, but beyond that, any look at other leagues. I mean, go look at the Bundesliga. Go, go look at the Serie A. Go look at La Liga. You know, all these different things that everyone's doing. Go look at APAC. Go look at Australia. Go look at Japanese rugby. What they're doing. How they're trying to reinvent things. Go look at South America and the leagues going on there. There's, there's always going to be little things that you might be able to pick up and then season habits, and more so look at minor leagues. You know, we talked about minor league baseball in the U.S. and how they've had to adapt and to not only survive and start thriving, but there will be other sports out there where they have to be creative. They don't have that much money, and they have much different issues that you could learn something from. I mean, if you look at semi-professional rugby here in the U.K., it's going to look a lot different from the premiership. So what, what could the premiership learn from that? I think a lot of the sports can look within – and just look lower down and learn a lot of things. And there are leagues out there that do that, and they're the ones that are starting to become much more stable and sustainable, I would say. I mean, the NHL is, has really tried to start doing that, looking within itself, and, okay, where can we learn things? What what can we implement that maybe the lower leagues are doing? And, you know, whether it's from a business standpoint or even from a rules standpoint. 
Wonderful. I'm gonna um, sort of uh, sort of finish us off on a rapid fire. Uh, so don't think too much. Just go for it and uh, try to be as brief as possible so that you don't overthink. Um, and I'm gonna start with what's your favorite sports club? I don't have one. Uh, cop out, but okay. Um, three sports organizations you want to work with and why? Uh, I'd say the NHL, the, um, I don't know. I, I'd like to, honestly, I'd like to work with everyone. That's the reality. I mean, there, everyone deserves the help and there are things that everyone could, could do a bit better. And there are things that everyone's doing great already that I'd love to learn from. Yeah. Which ties back to what you just said about like, everyone can learn from everyone. Right. So, um, five things you're looking forward to doing this year. Is that just anything or what are the... Uh, professionally, and maybe you can squeeze in one that's uh, sort of a wild card. Uh, yeah, well, I'm looking forward to bringing on more clubs and leagues and federations. I mean, we've got some in the works right now that I'm super excited about. It's a bit early to talk about, but um, it's definitely going to be a fast start to 2024. So I'm excited to see kind of what happens with that. And if anyone working in a sports organization in the UK and Ireland would love to know more about how you can assist them in achieving their commercial goals is listening to this podcast right now and wants to connect with you, where can they do that? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn, Palmer Foster, or they can send, in, send me an email, palmer.foster at datatalks.uk. Wonderful, Palmer. Thank you so much for a fantastic conversation and a brilliant start to 2024. Thank you for being part of the Sports CDP Crash Course. Thanks for having me.